I am the bone of my microphone. Salt is my body, and analysis is my blood. I have created over a thousand shitposts. Unknown to death, nor known to life. Have withstood pain to create many recordings. Yet, those hands will never hold a five-star. So, as I pray... UNLIMITED BLADE JERKS! What the fuck is up, gamers? Welcome to Unlimited Blade Jerks. It's been a while, huh? Life has been a thing. Yeah, I'm Scott Shiro, and I'm the reason it's been two years. Whoops. <laughs> Sometimes you just realize you really don't like editing, and that's fine. It's okay to realize that. Amanda's recording for us, and we're good. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to fate. I like it. Do we, though? Do we really like it? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with Do it. Do we like this garbage <laughs> fire? It's, it's very fine. I'm still coming to terms with the fact that I love this stupid shit. Yeah, I mean, I'm always right there with you, <laughs> but... You want to hit them uh, trigger warnings? So today we're going to be exploring episode two, which is called The Fake First Shot. This is a fake zero. And episode three, which is called Fuyuki City. And there are some major trigger warnings for these episodes, especially, I believe it's episode two. Uh, so trigger warnings for kidnapping and death of a child, or eldritch monsters, and body horror. That being said, episode starts in a cold open, with Ryder breaking out of a garage and scaring Waver. <laughs> Very normal. Uh, it's not even scaring Waver. It's like he's just pissing Waver off. Yeah, Waver spends the entirety of these two episodes being really mad. And confused. Yeah, he's super confused too. I don't blame him because Ryder is extremely boisterous and Waver is just trying to get his shit done. The difference in their mindset, it's very early on illustrated just by that single moment of Ryder looking in the books with the maps and he's like, ah oh, yes, world conquest. And Waver's like, bitch, we're here for a grail war, not right. world conquest. So Ryder says that he can't carry books in his spirit form, but he's carrying books with him. Waver calls him a thief, but Ryder says that he's a conquering king. Um, and that's pretty much the whole thing that happens in the cold open. And then the theme song hits. And it still fucking slaps, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oath sign. Good shit. Scene two. So Waver runs to the bridge. I believe this is the big red bridge in Fuyuki that we see a lot. Yeah. And Ryder has two books. One is a map book that's in Japanese. And the other is The Odyssey by Homer. Love that. <laughs> And then Ryder says he needs maps to prepare for war because he's learning more about how big the world actually is and the modern era. World conquest. Yeah, that's what Ryder is very interested in because of who he is as a heroic spirit. The king of conquerors. Yeah. So I am listening to the English audio because that's how I usually watch anime. And I still really like Waver's English voice actor. I think he's like really talented and plays the part well. That's uh, possibly a controversial opinion, but subs versus dubs is also controversial opinions no matter what you do. So oh, I like Waver's voice. I actually so do too, because I think that they adapted the whininess really well. Oh, yeah. The writer thinks he can conquer the world again, which is his goal. Waver wants him to focus on the Grail. So Ryder says, wants to know what Waver wants. And Waver is 
I think I said this last time, but he's probably my favorite character in Phase Zero. Uh, Waver really wants people to take him seriously, which is the biggest mood. But then Ryder says that his reputation's not a good wager and that the grill should just make him taller. A huge mood, because I'm the for best. Fun. Waver, suddenly he feels disrespected by this. He gets really upset and he almost uses a command seal. I don't remember if we explain command seals. It's basically like a magic and it commands the heroic spirit to do your bidding. And it's represented by like a symbol on the back of your hand. And a master can only use the command seal three times. And then I believe after that, they're out of the Grail War. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the command seal is always at work because that's what connects master and servant. But using the command seal in that way to compel a servant to do what you want them to do, even if it's not what they want to do, that can only be done three times. And then, yeah, if you use up that third one, the bond is severed and uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> So he decides against it. Smartly. Yeah, thankfully. Because I personally get very uncomfortable when anybody uses a command seal. So Waver wants to see Ryder's power. And when he's using his powers, he goes off model for a second. And it's <laughs> jarring. It reminds me of this moment in Beauty and the Beast. Mal is running up the hill and she goes off bottle. I always notice these kinds of things. Well, I mean, to be fair, in things like Disney movies where they're that kind of high production, things never go off model. So the one or two times that they do, it's like, hello? Yeah, it's really obvious. And honestly, that's pretty similar with Photobull because their animation is generally very on point. I have noticed the writer goes off model a lot. Writer is just also a very square man. So I feel like at certain angles, he just looks kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, when he shows Waver his power, he makes all the streetlights go out and then summons Thunder and his chariot. Gordius Wheel, King Goriath's offering to Zeus. I'm not familiar with that. But this chariot is what makes him a rider, implying that if he was some other class, he would have a different noble phantasm. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then Ryder asks Waver to find heroes to fight, and he's just going to sit here and read these maps. That's pretty typical of him, I think. I just think this is really funny. On the Type Moon wiki, on the Gordius Wheel page, it is described as an antique war chariot led by two divine bulls with rippling muscles. They are buff. Just thought that was really good. I think everything about Ryder is pretty muscular, though. Oh, yes. A beefy man. I love him. Scene three has it's Ilya and Kiritsugu. And they're outside, playing in the forest, outside the Einsburn Castle in the snow. They're looking for chestnut buds. So not much happens except for character definition for Kiritsugu and Ilya, which was kind of nice. It's nice to see them interacting. And then Saber is inside the house in the next scene, watching the two outside with Iris Veal, who's making tea. Saber wonders what Kiritsugu is like and thinks he's a cold person. Saber asks if they were surprised about her summoning. Saber says that she was, the direct translation here in Netflix is that she was disguised as a man in life. And I've seen some variants of this translation that makes it easy to headcanon Saber as non-binary. Now, I don't, I don't speak Japanese, so I couldn't exactly tell you 
what it exactly says, but like I'm non-binary and transgender. So it makes me really happy to see Saber hand canon as non-binary. Saber doesn't really think of herself as man or woman. In becoming king, she discarded everything about herself. It's almost like an it doesn't matter what she identifies as. I think it's interesting as we move forward to see Saber explore gender in different Mm -hmm. ways in Fate Zero and Fate Stay Night. They were surprised because King Arthur's legend is famous, and obviously we have Artoria here. Irie says that she doesn't think Kiritsugu would be upset about her gender. She thinks that Kiritsugu feels it was wrong to make a little girl be king. Uh, But Saber says that she is resigned to that fate. Iris Feel says that's what Kiritsugu is upset about. And then this next part is interesting. So Saber says that it's not good or respectful of Kiritsugu to judge the past based on modern views. And I think this is an actual practice that like historians take. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting to me. Then Iris Feel says that she believes Kiritsugu and Saber will not get along. And Irisfield says she also wants to save the world with the Holy Grail similar to Kiritsugu's ideals. That she gets her beliefs directly from Kiritsugu. So then Saber says the thing that she wants to do with the Grail is to save Britain because she couldn't do it in her own life. So then in scene five, we're back outside with Ilya and Kiritsugu. And Ilya, oh, this is a tough scene. Ilya says Kiritsugu and she can't play until after he gets back from Japan. And Kiritsugu thinks it will take two weeks for him to return and then says Irie will not be back for a long time. This whole scene is like that scene in Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire, when Ned Stark is like to Jon Snow, when I come back, I'll tell you about your mother. This whole scene is like that. And it's kind of foreshadowing. And I think like viewers who are well-versed in storytelling will watch it and be like, oh no. Irie said something to Ilya like, she will be watching over Ilya forever. And I just got sad. I was like, that's never a good sign when you say something like that to someone. It's like, oof. Even more so just from a foreshadowing standpoint, Irie's not coming back. That's kind of a definite at this point. But for Kiritsugu to give a pretty firm time frame of two weeks, that's where I go like, oh, no, uh, no, 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 And this will be important in night. So here's my new question. Why does Ilya call Kiritsugu daddy in English, but his first name in Japanese? I'm interested in that. The difference I would chalk up to localization, but I've been thinking for literally years about why Ilya doesn't call Kiritsugu any variation on dad in the original dialogue. My best guess is bottom line Kiritsugu's own issues. Judging from the first scene of the series alone, Kiritsugu obviously doesn't believe he deserves to be a father. And now in the chestnut game scene, we see that Ilya's kind of become a tiny sass monster. So all things considered, my theory is that she hit that phase where kids want to call their parents by name to sound grown up. And Kiritsugu didn't correct her, quote correct, because he can't reconcile his own feelings about his fatherhood. So instead of being a more disciplinarian father, he just became a playmate for her. I wouldn't know because I'm not a parent. But a friend of mine just had a baby. 
So I've been thinking about parenthood a lot lately. And parent must be really hard because like nobody oh, yeah. really tells you how to do it. You just got to figure it out as you go. And you're just responsible for this itty bitty little life. It must be really difficult for both curious to go in Irisville. Yeah, the circumstances surrounding Ilya's birth, they're not even really covered in the show. It's actually in a drama CD, which is a weird place for that. Like extra canonical is the way to go with how to drop new knowledge about your series. Tight Moon as a world franchise, I don't even know what to call it at this point, is if you want to know everything, you have to hunt what for that information. Universe. <laughs> we call it Nasuverse. Yeah. But I do like it Tight rhymes. Moon Universe, the I will universe. say. So the drama CD covers when Kiritsugu gets to Germany and meets Irisfield for the first time. At that point, she's pretty much robot because she was born with a purpose and that's all she really has. So Kiritsugu goes to Yubstahite and says, hey, this doll you created is really not what I need. It's not what's going to win the war because she has no self-worth and therefore has no want to protect herself. Yubstahite decided in retaliation, I suppose, he takes Irisfield and throws her into the snowy wastes surrounding the castle. Kiritsugu goes to find her and brings her back and says, okay, you know what? If Yubstahite's not going to do this, I'm going to do it. So he starts teaching her about, he wants to focus on anger because that's what he thinks fuels self-preservation. But she counters with, okay, so you mean I have to learn love? And he's like, wait, what the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, well, I have to love myself in order to be angry that someone's putting me in danger. And he's like, wait, 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 this is not what I said. And she's like, I'm going to practice loving you. Their relationship develops. They do properly fall in love. But Irisfield gets the impression that Kiritsugu has zero intention of surviving the Holy Grail War. So the reason Ilya was born is because Irisfield says, I don't want you to do that to yourself. I want you to have something to live for. Let's have a child. So finishing out the scene, Kiritsugu asks Ilya to wait for him until he comes home and promises to her that he will come home. And this was where I got the Ned Stark We vibes. love foreshadowing. OC5 is um a doozy. This is where the trigger warning starts. If you wanted to listen to this episode, but just don't want to listen to this scene, we'll put a timestamp in a description somewhere. So we meet Rinosuke, and he is a serial killer. The TV is talking about a serial killer, and this is him. He's a young man. He's got red hair. Wears like a casual outfit. He, I guess he's found this book, and it has a whole bunch of rituals in it for what he thinks is summoning demons. So he's doing this ritual with blood. And turns out that he kidnapped a kid. As much as it's he's kidnapped a kid, he, I guess, broke into where whatever this apartment house is and he killed the entire Yikes, family I didn't except the kid. realize that implication. That makes it worse. He found a book in, I think it was his parents' storehouse. That's what prompted him to attempt the demon summoning because apparently his family has some kind of background in magecraft. 
but uh, he had no clue what the instructions for the ritual are actually for. That's a command seal on his hand and he doesn't know what it is. So it's clear that like this is new to him. He summons Caster, who is scary looking, also tall and an, a, like an imposing figure. He's wearing like a, a robe and he's got flicked back hair and like a dead looking skin. If Ryder is the square imposing man, Caster is the round imposing man. The most notable thing about Caster is that he's got like big, almost like craft googly eyes. It's approaching that. The other comparison oh, is I, like I was going to say fish eyes. eyes. I mean, close enough. So Caster appears and he's like, What are you doing? Arinosuke says he's doing murder, which is his He's like, Wow, welcome, demon. Thinks he's a demon, and he asks him if he wants to eat the child. Caster's like, I don't know about that. I'm here for the Holy Grail, or and Rinosuke's like, what's that? So he explains it to him. Vaguely. I'm here for the Grail. <laughs> I'm here for murder. That's what Rinosuke says. So Rinosuke is like, do you want this kid? And Caster is Caster like, is really just trying to make a point here that you know he he and Rinosuke are kind of a match made in hell. Because uh, he says, no, I'm not going to eat the child. He unties the child and says, nope, there's the door. Go ahead. And as the kid is just close enough to the door, he gets eaten by a Cthulhu monster. And Rinosuke is like super excited about this. And he's like, I want to learn more ways to murder people. And Castor's like, hell yeah. And then Rinosuke asks him what he should be called. And uh, Castor tells Rinosuke, he's kind of hedgy about it. Then he tells him that his name is Bluebeard. I should mention that this is not a pirate. Do you want me to tell you who Bluebeard is? I don't know. Is it a spoiler for who Castor is? It's a clue. So Bluebeard is a figure from French oral tradition folklore. The story was published for the first time in 1697, written by Charles Perrault. I'm not 100% sure how to say his name. This is the guy who gave us the first written versions of Cinderella and Puss in Boots as well. There have been a number of iterations over the years, for example, by the Brothers Grimm. But the central story element is a nobleman who has married and then murdered several women. Like we said, Bluebeard is not the real identity of Castor, but the reference does carry a few clues as to his true name. Scene six is back with uh, Kyrie Kotemine, and he is talking to Assassin, who is his heroic spirit. And he tells them Castor has been summoned and tells them to go to Tosaka Manor because he's going to fight Archer. And he mentions that Archer is one of the three great knight classes. Can you explain Yeah, that? absolutely. Saber, Archer, and Lancer are the great knight classes, whereas Ryder, Castor, Assassin, and Berserker are the cavalry classes. The knight classes are overall strong warriors with more rounded stats, and they can 100% hold their own in melee combat. So they're obvious choices for this kind of situation, like a Holy Grail War. On the other hand, cavalry classes usually excel in one, maybe two stats. For example, caster and mana, and assassin and agility. Therefore, they'd normally suit support roles in combat rather than being frontline warriors. Uh, masters who end up with cavalry class servants often need to be creative with their strategies because taking a knight class head on is just not a brilliant idea for a cavalry class servant. Yeah. 
So Assassin dives off the cliff and then they run to Tosaka Manor. And this is a really cool action scene. It's got them ducking under magic barriers, kind of like a spy movie with the lasers and everything. I think this is like Mission Impossible style. I love this scene because it's so well choreographed. Yeah, it's really fun to watch. And then Assassin is starting to like flick things at the magic barriers. What are they flicking? It's just stones. Um, They're just trying to shatter the jewels that Tokiomi used to create the barrier. And what I assume is some kind of an alarm system. Assassin grabs the stone in the middle of the sculpture, which seems like is what triggers everything. But Archer shoots them down. Archer kind of insults them Who a lot. Who said you can look up at me, mongrel? It's very much a Dio moment oh, here. Oh, Dio. Dio is from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, in case you don't know. Archer is kind of the same kind of guy, down to like the gold outfit and the penchant for like grandiosity. Mm. That's the end of episode two. Then we get into episode three. And in the first scene, uh, so we got Tokiomi talking to Archer about what just happened. And Tokiomi reveals that Archer is Gilgamesh. He's kind of talking him up. He says not to attack yet. And then Gilgamesh says that the modern world sucks and he pretty much just wants modern treasure. And if he doesn't get it, he'll punish Tokiomi. And then he leaves in a like a flurry of gold sparkles, which is how I wish I could leave a room. Oh, God, same. <laughs> could you imagine? Uh, Tokiomi is really surprised that Gilgamesh is the archer, and he thinks that Kire is still on his side, he mentions. So then, scene two happens, and the news is kind of out that Assassin was killed, and that's what Waver thinks. And right, they're hanging out in Waver's bedroom at his quote-unquote grandma and grandpa's house, and Ryder is laying on the floor in his, like, close to his underwear, I guess. (laughs) Uh, and he's watching more briefings on Waver's television. Waver is pissed off. He's working. And he thinks that Ryder is being lazy and eating cookies all day. I'm sorry. This is one of the best scenes in the show. This movie is so it's fucking so good. Funny. So Ryder says that Assassin is not a threat. And then he sees a plane on the TV. And he says, oh, I want 10 of those. And then anime Bill Clinton appears. (laughs) Ryder says that the biggest enemy is anime Bill Clinton. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a pretty good drawing of Bill Clinton. It looks a lot like him. I love this scene so much. I love Ryder because like Ryder will do modern things and get really like into them. He just gets very excited about things. Yeah, yeah. So Waver is talking a lot. He's telling Ryder about what they need to do. And Ryder is not paying attention because he loves television. Waver says that Archer killed Assassin. And then Ryder says, well, fuck that. I want to fight the ultimate winner. Then Ryder explains what a noble phantasm is. Because Waver thinks that Archer has more than one. Can you explain Noble Phantasm? Uh, Noble Phantasm is a heroic spirit's ultimate legend in either the form of a physical thing, like Saber's Excalibur, or an ability like... I mean, we haven't gotten to that scene yet, but it's in this episode. So an ability like Assassin's Zabania, which allows them to manifest their hundred personas. Although Ryder says a heroic spirit usually has one noble phantasm, that's really not true at all. Heroic spirits often have a kind of like a trump card noble phantasm, but they can have basically any number of others. For instance, Ryder himself does have a 
quote, trump card noble phantasm. But the chariot he summoned in one of the previous scenes is also considered a noble phantasm. There's a lot of other examples in Fate Zero, but uh, spoilers. So Waver says that Archer attacked by throwing dozens of swords. And Ryder, he says, I'm going to read it in my Ryder voice. It's a very good quote. Aside from one word in it. Food, sex, sleep, and war. Whatever you do, do it to the fullest. That is the secret of life. I feel very strongly about this quote because it's, I think it's important when YOLO, first of all, and second of all, do your thing. Even if you say war, I mean, you could also interpret it within, say, the climate of the world currently, fighting for social justice. Right, absolutely. If you care about something. Care about it. So it's a, it's a nice quote, and I like it. Ryder then says he wants to go out and ride and observe others. Uh, and he's very confident. And he wants to do his noble phantasm. But then Waver's like, no, it'll blow up the house! And then we got a smash cut to the next scene. Look, the muscular bulls are going to wreck Grandma and Grandpa's house. We can't have this. Uh, so the next scene is with Kire. He says that his servant is gone. He shows up to the church. Risei lets him in and he says that the church is neutral sanctuary. And then assassin just starts showing up in multiple bodies, multiple gender presentations, tons of assassin all over the room. And I guess assassin isn't dead anymore. This is their noble phantasm. They have, you know, a hundred personas and they can all manifest into their own bodies. And that's pretty much what happens in this scene is we just kind of get the full scope of what Zabania does. And then scene five, Irisfeel and Saber arrive in Japan and the airline is called Volare. It's good. Irisfeel's like, how did you like flying a plane in the plane? And Saber's like, well, it was pretty regular because heroic spirits gain knowledge of the modern era when they materialize. Then she says, if I wanted to, I could fly this plane. And Iris Veal says that Saber is probably the only servant to fly in a plane. And then she says she never gets tired of watching Saber. And she reveals that she picks out Saber's outfits to match her own. Not to expose my shipping agenda here, but... Iris Field has two hands. Yeah, Iris Field does have two hands, as it turns That's out. That's how I feel about this. A Saber is currently in the fancy all-black suit and gloves. And Iris Field says it's okay for women to wear a suit and that she chose it to match her own outfit. Iris Field doesn't even say it's okay for a woman to wear a suit. It really shows that Iris Field is disconnected from societal norms. Gender doesn't matter to her. She's just like, I like my outfit. I picked yours to match mine. And we're gonna go on a date. <laughs> and they do, pretty much. Well, that was, yeah, that wasn't the original plan. I just skipped ahead. It's okay, it's okay. So they get off the plane and they start to ride in a car. And Irie says that Kiritsugu arrived 12 hours before, but Iris, Phil, and Saber are staying by themselves. And they're riding in the car. And Iris, Phil says that she wants to go enjoy the city. And Saber says it's not safe. But Irisville's really never been outside the castle before. So she's like, oh, it would be a waste not to enjoy the city. And then Irisville starts talking about um, that she says that she was a puppet created for the Holy Grail War. So I guess this is where we explain homunculi. 
a homunculus in the context of fate, it's pretty much the same thing as, you know, quote, usual. Uh, it's an artificially created human through alchemical magecraft. Alchemy focuses on the transmutation, manipulation of matter, which is where, you know, the lead into gold trope comes from. Uh, homunculi live on the magical energy of the earth, mana, rather than ode, which is what humans and other living creatures generate on their own. Uh, homunculi are also created with really powerful magic circuits. So given that and the fact that mana is comparatively infinite to Ode, uh, the magecraft of a homunculus can far surpass that of a human. However, their nature as an artificial life form can result in, quote, defects. So their bodies are rather delicate. So Kiritsugu, Iris feel about the outside world. She's never really been there. And then Saber says, stop the car. And she gets out of the car and comes around to the other side and extends her hand to Iris feel and says she will walk Iris feel through the city as a knight. Scene five, Kiritsugu and Maya meet at the hotel. And Maya is showing Kiritsugu some weapons, a lot of guns. And she says, people will assume Irisville is Saber's master. And then she fills in Kiritsugu on the assassin thing, thinking that assassin is dead. But she says that she expects assassin is alive. Maya tells Kiritsugu where Kire is. And Kiritsugu tells Maya to send a familiar to watch the church. What's a familiar in fate? So again, very similar to what we think of in a general context. So like a witch is familiar. It's a separate being that's fueled by a mage's ode and acts as an extension of that mage. They can be created a number of ways, but the most common, which would be like used for simple tasks like Waver's mouse or Maya's bat for recon, those are created using animals or inorganic constructs like golems, essentially. Familiars can also be far more complex. For instance, servants essentially function as familiars, although they are summoned rather than created. So then Kiritsugu picks up his favorite gun, and he says that Ilya is eight years old and weighs less than his gun. And I was like, oof. That's that guilt complex. And then Maya kisses Kiritsugu. And I was like, hello? Are they having an affair? Okay, so yeah, the anime just kind of drops that in with no context whatsoever. But the light novels delve way deeper into how absolutely broken a person Kiritsugu is. Uh, and the simple answer about the Kiritsugu and Maya thing is yes. However, it's not an affair born of love between them. Basically, Kiritsugu believes that participating in the war and sacrificing Irisville for his wish is an ultimate betrayal of their love. Uh, so this affair with Maya, he's thinking of it as a rehearsal for that ultimate betrayal. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not going to defend that, but like, he's just a really, really broken person. His thought processes are fucked. I love Kiritsugu as a character because I find the way that he thinks so interesting and unique. Like I haven't seen another character that thinks the way that he does. 
And also, I just... Go to therapy. Yes, that would be nice if he went to therapy. But unfortunately, he just has a grail war. So then scene six happens, and we're back to Saber and Irisville. So I'm happy again. I'm happy to see it. They go to the beach at night, and Irene dances in the ocean. Wow! It's really cute! She's so happy! She's having a fun. Saber asks if she is a good gentleman escort, and Irisville says, yes, she is a good knight. And then Saber calls Irisville, your highness, and I fell over. Irisville has two hands. So Irisville asks Saber if she likes the sea. And Saber says that the sea was a place for invaders to come. And then Irisville says Saber used to not be able to enjoy things. This is a serious callback to the conversation that they had while watching Kiritsugu and Ilya. That Kiritsugu is upset that Saber couldn't just be a person. That the role of king was forced on her. Saber couldn't even enjoy, you know, looking out into the ocean because it was just a way for invaders to attack her kingdom. Saber says, would Irisville prefer Kiritsugu to escort her around the city? And Iris says, yes, but when he's happy, it seems to cause him pain. Kiritsugu, please go get therapy. Yeah, uh, that's what I mean when it's just like, this dude is just so broken. Irie, like, she's very insightful. Yeah, that's a pretty good constant for her, which is very interesting. They sense another heroic spirit in the distance, and Saber wants to fight. The next scene, Waver and Ryder are on top of the Red Bridge in Fuyuki, and Waver is freaking out. Good reason. Ryder is sitting on the bridge, drinking and surveying the land. And Waver says he wants to go home, but Ryder says to be patient. Scene 8 happens in like a shipyard area. Saber and Irie start walking into the area. And then Lancer appears. I don't remember if we could see what he is wearing. Yeah, it's his weird green bodysuit because I guess Lancers have to wear bodysuits in Fate. This Lancer is notable because he has two spears. That's another glaring example of a heroic spirit doesn't have to only have one noble phantasm. Saber magically transforms into some armor and Excalibur is cloaked in an invisible kind of magic thing. We can still see it because there's like swirly whirlies, but you can't tell it's a sword. What's that about? Well, actually... I think that this is a good time to segue into our new segment. Well, yeah, because that's basically the end of the episode. Irie's like, I'll I'll heal Saber. And Saber says, watch my back. And Irie's like, yeah. And then the episode ends. So um, we have a segment, y'all. Who's that heroic spirit? It's Artoria Pendragon. Our first heroic spirit that we're going to go over is Artoria Pendragon. And most people would know this heroic spirit as King Arthur. So I am going to talk about historical stuff. And then Amanda is going to tell us about what's going on in fate. King Arthur was a legendary British king who lived during the 5th and 6th centuries. Most of what we know about Arthur is legend and folklore. And modern historians typically believe that he wasn't like an actual person. He first came to popularity in the 1136 book, The History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. And there's really no 
canonical version of Arthurian legend. So there's a lot of discrepancies about what happened in all the stories. In the 12th century, some new characters were added and the stories became more capital R romantic and focused on all his compatriots, the Knights of the Round Table, rather than Arthur himself. He kind of took a back seat. So in the book History of the Kings of Britain, Arthur was depicted as a warrior who fought many supernatural beings. Arthur's father was King Uther Pendragon, and he had a magical mentor named Merlin, who later went on to be Arthur's magical mentor. So Merlin disguised Uther as the enemy king Gorlois. That way he could sleep with his wife Igraine to conceive Arthur. You know. Incredible. Arthur succeeds Uther at age 15. He has a mythical sword named Excalibur, and he has a wife named Guinevere. And there are various knights of the round table that are named at this time, like Sir Kay, Sir Bedivere, and Sir Gawain. Now, in this story, the character of Mordred, who often appears as his son, is his nephew this time. So Mordred marries Queen Guinevere and takes the throne. Arthur fights and kills Mordred, but he's mortally wounded in the process. So he's taken to this mythical isle called Avalon to heal. And the idea is prevalent in Arthurian legend, this idea that Arthur is not actually dead and that will someday return from Avalon as like a messianic ruler. The once and future king. In the 13th century stories, it becomes more, like I said, romantic with a capital R. Lancelot is introduced as well as additional knights, Percival, Galahad, Tristan, and his lover Isolde. Now this is where we get the story of young Arthur pulling the sword from the stone that was foretold by Merlin that whoever could pull the sword from the stone is the one true king. That's like the most important story about Arthur because he's kind of like a side character in these stories. He's seen as like a do-nothing king, quotes, rather than a warrior hero like he was before. Lancelot has a big prevalence here. For example, there's this popular story called Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, which introduced Lancelot and introduced this common theme that runs throughout a lot of modern Arthurian legend that Lancelot and Guinevere are having an affair. In these stories, when Arthur finds that out, he just kind of goes silent and doesn't really do anything. The Holy Grail quest has kind of been popularized as a big important part of Arthurian legend, but in this original story, Percival the story of the Grail, King Arthur doesn't really have a lot to do in this area. This is also where Mordred becomes Arthur's son. In the 13th century, this is around when Camelot becomes the primary core of King Arthur. In the 13th century, Arthur became one of the Nine Worthies, which were various figures from pagan religions, Christianity, and Jewish traditions as examples of chivalry, which was really important at the time. Now, in the 15th century, writer Thomas Mallory wrote, oof, I'm gonna fuck this up, Le Mort d'Arthur which means the death of Arthur. And he compiled various cycles of Arthurian legend into another cycle. This book is where Excalibur was given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake, who was, I believe her name is Nimue. After the Middle Ages, Arthurian legend kind of becomes less popular until the 1816 reprinting of Le Mort d'Arthur. 
Writer Alfred Tennyson adapted Arthurian legend into Victorian sensibilities in his poems from the 1850s called The Idols of the King. And Arthur became a symbol of manhood who failed to establish this perfect kingdom on earth. Hubris. And Mark Twain was later inspired by Victorian era works to write his story, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Hmm. I have never read it. Now we get into a modern Arthurian legend. This is most inspired by T.H. White's The Once and Future King, which is where I first learned about Arthurian legend. I read it in school. This is the book where we read a lot about Arthur's childhood and he's known as Wart. And this story actually inspired Disney's movie, The Sword and Stone, the animated one. Modern Arthurian legend was also really inspired by the musical Camelot, which was really popular during the JFK era. So if you want additional modern adaptations, you can watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the musical adaptation Spamalot. Then Merlin from the BBC is an interesting adaptation. It focuses on like not child King Arthur, but like young man King Arthur, but Merlin is the main character. And then the newest one that I've experienced is the Great Pendragon Campaign for the Pendragon Tabletop System by Greg Safford, who died, I think, two years ago. Rest in peace. It's a really cool game. You play as knights following through the story of King Arthur, and your character can actually step into different roles in the legends. I'm playing an adapted version with some of my friends. Uh, my friend Colin at Pagedish. They created a kind of truncated version of Pendragon because Pendragon is rules heavy. So they made a rules light version. And we're playing through the Pendragon campaign. And it's really fucking cool. And I can't wait to get back to it. So all that being said, I'm done with my notes. Amanda, what do you got for me on Artoria Pendragon? Okay, Artoria Pendragon. There's multiple ways to romanize her name. Generally, the fandom agrees on Artoria. You could hear Arthuria in the Fate Zero dub, which, eh, I don't mind it. And then Fate Grand Order romanized it as Altria, and I hate it so much. So Saber's backstory, it's basically an amalgamation of all of the more recent additions to Arthurian legend. So let me tell you a little bit about it. King Uther Pendragon ruled Britain during a tumultuous time, during the fall of the Roman Empire, which resulted in the split of Britannia and a violent struggle between the Britons, Sacks, the Picts, and the Scots. Possibly more, I'm not sure. Uther fell in love with Igraine, wife of the Duke of Cornwall, and he enlisted the mage Merlin to essentially play matchmaker. In return, Merlin required their future child be entrusted to his care as he prophesied that the child would become a great successor to King Uther. The child, however, was a girl and couldn't officially be named heir to the throne. So Merlin placed her with Uther's vassal, Sir Ector, to be raised into knighthood alongside foster brother, Sir Kay. Fifteen years later, Merlin created the Sword in the Sown scenario with Caliburn, the Sword of Selection, to name Uther's heir. Merlin warned Arturia that to pull the sword and become king would be to discard her humanity. He showed her a vision of her destined end. 
Despite fears that she'd harbored all her life as she prepared for this moment, Artoria forsook herself for the sake of the smiles she saw in Merlin's visions, and she drew Caliburn from the stone. Artoria ruled from the Britain capital Camelot with the support of the Knights of the Round Table and her wife, Guinevere, who she married for the sake of having an heir. Uh, Merlin gave Artoria a magic dick. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it's not great. We'll get there. Caliburn was broken during some ambiguous battle when Artoria apparently forsook the principles of chivalry. Subsequently, she was granted Excalibur, the Sword of Promised Victory, by Vivian, the Lady of the Lake. Merlin created Avalon, a sheath for Excalibur, which effectively granted immortality by healing any wounds inflicted upon the bearer, as well as halting their aging. Fortigern, who is the brother of Uther, either usurped the throne or rebelled with the help of foreign tribes, and Artoria defeated him at some point after receiving Excalibur. I really couldn't find any detailing on when this was. If someone can clear that up, I would be super grateful. Unfortunately, less ambiguous than all of that is the story surrounding Mordred. Artoria had a half-sister, Morgan Le Fay, who was Egraine's daughter from her previous marriage. In a plot to sabotage Artoria's rule, Morgan magically extracted sperm from Artoria's magic dick to create a homunculus clone of her, named Mordred. Morgan then sent Mordred and another of her sons, Agravain, to join the Knights of the Round Table, and Mordred was to seize the throne when the time was right. Artoria waged battle after battle against invaders, foregoing the good of the individual for the good of the country and the people as a whole. She also ordered the search for the Holy Grail after Merlin reported the ill effects of the loss of magic within the land, which created droughts and ill harvests. A big theme in Fate is the movement from Age of Gods to the Age of Man and the loss of true magic with that move, so we'll probably end up talking about that a fair amount. Although Camelot was thriving, Artoria's fall began with descent from within when Sir Tristan departed from Camelot, saying the king does not understand the feelings of others. While Artoria was gone on an expedition to Rome, Sir Agravain uncovered the affair between Sir Lancelot and Guinevere, and this set into motion a perfect storm of events, including the theft of Avalon, that allowed Mordred to raise a rebellion. Upon Artoria's return, everything culminated in the Battle of Camlan, where she both slew and sustained a fatal blow from Mordred. While awaiting her death on a mountain of corpses, she despaired, unable to accept the terrible end she believed that she brought upon Britain. At that moment, the voice of, quote, the world, offered her a pact. In return for her life after death, she would be able to seek the Holy Grail. She didn't understand, but no price would have been too high for the miracle of Britain's salvation. And that about brings us up to speed for Fate Zero, although the Fourth Holy Grail War depicted in Zero was definitely not Artoria's first opportunity to seek the Holy Grail. So, let's talk abilities. There are a lot of factors that play into a servant's parameters, but in general, Artorias float around these levels. Strength, B. Endurance, B. Agility, B. Mana, A. And Luck, A+. Notably, that drops to D under Kiritsugu. 
Merlin imbued Artoria with the blood of a dragon. So rather than magic circuits like a regular person, she possesses an exponentially more powerful dragon magic core, which explains her A rank in mana. Artoria has rank A magic resistance. Uh, it really only fails against true magic and divine beasts, which makes modern magecraft more or less ineffective. She also has a rank A ability called Mana Burst, which is a momentary burst of mana to reinforce her body and her weapons, which is why she is able to fight at such a high caliber despite having a smaller frame and other physical disadvantages. She also possesses rank A Instinct, which is intuition for battle. Rank A is high enough that it's comparable to precognition. Her writing skill, which is a class skill because knights are often associated with mounted combat, uh, floats at about rank B or A. She also has high charisma, enough to lead a country. And finally, she has the Blessing of the Lady of the Lake, which means that water cannot impede her. She is able to walk on water. Her first noble phantasm is, of course, Excalibur, the Sword of Promised Victory. This is a rank A++ anti-fortress noble phantasm, described as a holy sword made of light. She also has a noble phantasm called Invisible Air, the Bounded Field of the Wind King. This is actually what you were asking about before, Scout. It's a rank C anti-personnel noble phantasm. It's a sheath of compressed air which refracts light to render Excalibur invisible. This can be released to create an offensive or strategic blast called Strike Air, and it can be used around other objects than Excalibur. Invisible Air doesn't have any historical basis, it's just something that Nasu thought Merlin could have thought up. Finally, her last noble phantasm is Avalon, the ever-distant Utopia. This is the sheath of Excalibur, which we see used as a catalyst at the beginning of the series when Kiritsugu summons Saber. This is a rank EX single target defensive noble phantasm. It grants the passive buffs of halting aging and healing the wounds of the person holding it, but it can also be used actively to deploy an immensely powerful bounded field. Lastly, and this isn't so much an ability as it is just kind of a note about Ortoria, her summoning is irregular. Heroic spirits are usually facsimiles of data recorded within the Throne of Heroes. However, Saber is pulled from the moment she created her pact with the world. As such, she's still alive, frozen in time until she's able to attain the Holy Grail or otherwise abandon her search for it. The most notable functional difference between her and a normal servant is that she cannot take spirit form, as noted in episode 3. In Fate's Day Night, Saber does state that she would not be summonable as any class except Saber, but Fate Grand Order plays with this a little bit. Uh, she was summonable as an archer for one of the summer events, but she's just a summer swimsuit servant because I guess Delight Works likes to make money. I get that money. Gotta pay for those cards. Hell yeah. I get that right up. And then there's a version of Artoria, which is a lancer, because she also had a spear I called... didn't notice until a Grand Order. Yeah, same. <laughs> there's a lot that it's like, wow, I actually learned a thing. So the spear is called Rongomeniad. Welsh tradition. Knew of a dagger named Carwenen? 
and a spear named Bronchomania. In Geoffrey of Monmouth's story, History of the King of Britain, it appears as Ron, which means spear. Geoffrey also names Arthur's shield as Pridwen. In another story, Pridwen is the name of Arthur's ship, while his shield is named, it's spelled W-Y-N-E-B-G-W-R-T-H-U-C-H-E-R. If anyone speaks Welsh, can you tell please. us how to pronounce this, please? And then it also says the Mot Arthur mentions Clarent, a sword of peace meant for knighting and ceremonies as opposed to battle, which Mordred interesting and then used to kill Arthur. Okay, that's interesting because Mordred's noble phantasm is Blood Clarent. Ah, very interesting. So there are a lot of swords. And one spear and a shield. Now you know stuff. Now we know stuff. So yeah, Artoria is summonable as a lancer because in life she wielded the holy spear Rangomeniad. This is the weapon that slew both Vortigern and Mordred. But Lancer Artoria is from a continuity where Rangomaniad became her favorite weapon over Excalibur. So that's our new segment. You get to learn. This is a learning podcast now. We love it. Yeah. Next, we got some fate news. Amanda, can you tell me what's going on? Because I don't know shit. Yeah. So admittedly, we haven't gotten a whole, whole lot the past month or so. Uh, we got one big announcement, but in July, on the first weekend, uh, which was July 4th to 5th, Aniplex had their online fest because a lot of cons are doing some kind of online thing to replace the actual convention, and I guess Aniplex decided to have their own. They had the Fate Anime Project Online Gathering, where there were a few representatives of voice actors from different parts of the franchise. There was Ayako Kawasumi, who plays Artoria. She was there representing today's menu for the Emiya family, also known as Emiya Gohan, which is a spin-off of Fate Stay Night. Basically, it poses the question, hey, what if everyone in this show were happy and they just ate food? Yeah, it's really good. It's about cooking. It's I very like it. sweet. Cooking with Saber. Cooking with Saber. So then... Noriko Shitaya, voice of Sakura Mato, was there representing the Heavensfield trilogy. Nobunaga Shimazaki, who plays Ritsuko Fujimaru in the Fate Grand Order animes, was there representing Fate Grand Order. Absolute Demonic Front Babylonia, which is based on the seventh singularity of the mobile game. And Satoshi Suruoka was there representing Fate Grand Order Divine Realm of the Round Table Camelot which is the sixth singularity and is coming out in two movies, I believe. Tsuroka plays Archer Arash in those movies and also plays Fate Zero Caster, who obviously I'm not going to name because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who doesn't know. So the four voice actors, they mostly just discussed favorite moments from the past Fate anime. In the way of talking about newer things, they apologized for the delay of the first Camelot movie, which was originally planned for the Japan release of August 15th. There's no new date currently announced, except it should be in 2020. Heaven's Feel 3 Spring Song was originally planned for March 28th, then moved to April 25th, and is now scheduled for a Japan release on August 15th. So that's coming up pretty soon, and I'm super excited for that. 
The only real announcement that we got from the Anime Project Online Gathering was that the upcoming Emiya Gohan game for the Switch is going to get a North America release, so that's also very exciting. Then, on July 22nd, Fate Extra celebrated its 10th anniversary, and we got a huge announcement that they are going to make Fate Extra Record, which is a remake of the original game, which was for the PSP. We currently have no platforms planned for release or a date given, but fans do expect a North America release due to the website having a very prominent English option. And that's pretty much what we got for the past month-ish. So that's fake news. Hopefully you guys like enjoy us coming back. If you want to reach out, questions, comments, whatever. Our email is unlimitedbladejerks at gmail.com. Hit us up. Yeah. Or tweet at us. At UBJCast. We've tried our best. Please don't yell at us. <laughs> This has been Unlimited Blade Jerks. I'm Scout. You can find me on Twitter at, at Cybernetics, C Y B E R N I T N E T I Q U E S, uh, where I mostly talk about Fire Emblem now. I'm Amanda or Onion. I don't really give a shit. You can find me on Twitter at, at Onion, O H N I O H N. If you like our new cover art, Hell yeah. we love Roy, friend of the show Roy. You can follow Roy at, at @semperfunny on Twitter. You also might want to check out the Trans Journalists Association. It is a relatively new organization of trans journalists, and I'm a member, and I am really proud to be a member of this organization because it's really important to have more trans representation in newsrooms and the media and journalism in general. So if you want to follow the TJA on Twitter, you can follow the TJA at, at transjournalist. One word, no S at the end. This has been Unlimited Blade Jerks. Remember, people die when they are killed. Ah!